BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. It's episode 232. We're talking about optimal testosterone levels for health and performance in men and women. In episode 228, we talked about the diagnosis, workup, and treatment of individuals with low testosterone. Across the globe, testosterone prescribing and the use of supplements advertised to increase testosterone levels has gone up in the search for an optimal testosterone level. In this podcast, we're going to focus on what testosterone levels tells us about a person's health and performance in both men and women. Is there a testosterone level that reduces risk of cardiovascular disease or diabetes, or do these disease processes actually cause reduced testosterone? Additionally, do higher levels of testosterone within the normal range lead to more muscle mass, or does a better body composition produce higher levels of testosterone? All that and more on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. All right, we're here with Dr. Austin Baraki, the second most handsome doctor in North America on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, episode 232, talking about what is the optimal testosterone level for health and performance. Don't get triggered yet, Austin. It's going to be <laughs> fine. How's it going, man? I'm warmed up, yeah. I'm doing okay. What's up with you? Uh, you know, surviving, recycling <laughs> oxygen, just, you know, <laughs> persisting, uh, yes. against all odds. Uh, yeah, this is going to be a cool podcast. I think only because we get, we legitimately get tons of questions about testosterone and we have a lot of, uh, women's related testosterone content in this particular podcast. There'll be a third part of this podcast, potentially a fourth, because I do want to talk about super physiological doses so of uh, testosterone where people are actually taking testosterone. I also want to talk about lifestyle changes that can, uh, you know, increase testosterone levels and all that sort of stuff. That way we have this whole like, compendium 
of testosterone-related materials that we can just link to people. And hopefully they actually listen to it rather than we get the same questions over and over again. But here we are. Uh, before we pop into this podcast, we do have some new stuff uh, on the website. We just stocked a new uh, t-shirt color for the street tees that's available. The, pep- the color is called Pepper, which for uh, astute listeners, you might know that that is also the name of one of Austin's cats, uh, <laughs> Mr. Pepper Pants. Yeah, that's or- right. Is it Sergeant Pepper or is it Mr. Pepper Pants? Oh, I'll have to check in with Lorraine to see what rank she's achieved. We gave her an honorary doctorate, so she is Dr. Pepper. So Dr. Pepper. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so get that. Also, we finally have the caffeine-free version of PeriRx is now available on the website. It is reformulated. It lasts twice as long as the previous supplement, and we didn't raise the cost because just good people like that. Uh, so you can check that out also with the description of everything we changed, why we changed it, etc. cetera. Uh, our whey protein is also back in stock and we have new articles on the website, everything from how to improve your rowing, what to do if you have meniscus related pain in your knee, uh, how do belts work, etc. You can check all that out. And then finally, we still have some upcoming live in-person seminars. The pain and rehab team is going to be in Los Angeles in September. We will be uh, in Sacramento, California at Untamed Strength in October for our two-day health and performance seminar. And then we'll also be in Australia in January of 2024. We'll be at both Sydney and Perth. Those are all live on the website. So if you're in one of those areas, you know, snatch up one of the spots. I know that they are selling out reasonably quickly. So I wouldn't wait. People still will. But I, I guess they just have more flexible travel plans than I do. Uh, yeah, all that stuff's linked in the description below. Check that out. And then if you haven't listened to our TRT podcast, so that stands for Testosterone Replacement Therapy, that's episode 228. Uh, we are going to start out with a review on this particular podcast episode, but that would give you a pretty good footing for what we're going to dive into today with respect to physiology, some terms, some kind of fund of knowledge type stuff with respect to testosterone levels. But if you're already listening, you know, don't turn it off. Don't like, don't go anywhere. Just, you know, keep hang listening out. hang out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So before we start Austin, just cause I know you do get this question, the same, probably the same frequency as I do, maybe more, uh, just because, um, you interface with patients, um, still when people ask you like, what is the optimal testosterone level or what is an optimal testosterone level? How, do, how do you like think about that? Obviously your response is going to be pleasant and kind <laughs> yes. and in showing understanding and with some education, but how do you start thinking about that, uh, in, in your brain? Yeah, I think that, uh, one of the really tricky aspects of this as is a very common topic for me to discuss on this podcast relates to testing and test interpretation. And it would be so nice and easy and <laughs> working as a clinician with patients would be a piece of cake. If, uh, if test interpretation were as simple as obtain test that gives you a highly accurate, reliable, uh, uh, single number that tells you whether a diagnosis is present or absent in absolute terms, um, there is effectively no test that does that. <laughs> test interpretation is really complicated. And then there are additional layers of complexity, uh, not just at the level of the test itself, how you know accurate and reliable the test is, but then what are what is the biological phenomenon that you're looking at? So we've talked before about how 
testosterone as a hormone, as we, we see with many hormones, it has this diurnal variation, goes up parts of the times of the day, down other types of times of the day. And there are tons of other things that can impact its level at any given time. Um, like if you're sick, um, if you're fasted, if you're fed, if you've drank alcohol, certain medications, all sorts of other things that can mess with this. And so the idea that there could be a single number test result that I could draw a blood test at a particular time, get a number, and that number would be like, this is perfect. That is such a, in just an extreme, you know, oversimplification of this, um, that it is really even a challenging thing to, to start to work on. But the answer here is there is no single optimal testosterone level, um, certainly on a population level. I think that you could maybe make the case that there is... Um, perhaps one for, on an individual level. The problem is there's no valid way to determine what that is for a given person. And so, so it's, it, it's, a, it's a challenging concept to discuss. Um, and people are going to come in. Typically, when somebody comes in with that kind of a question, um, this is rarely like out of the blue because people who don't know anything about this um, or, or haven't done any of their own like reading or listening or like looked any of this stuff up on the internet, they don't come in asking this. The people who ask these kind of things are people who have been trying to learn about this a little bit more. Maybe they've read, the, listened to you know certain podcasts or read some stuff on the internet or something. So they're coming in with some kind of an idea. And so typically the way I start those conversations is a way that I start most of my conversations with patients is kind of like, tell me where you're coming from with this. Where is this question coming from? What do you know about this? What's leading to this question? Is there something in particular that you're worried about? And so that helps me understand a lot more about the person than me just launching into an explanation about, you know, endocrine feedback loops and diurnal variation and test analytic variation and stuff like that. So that's usually how I start that conversation. I see if I can nudge them more towards paying attention to how are you feeling? How are you, you know, what, what symptoms, where is this source of concern coming from? And then maybe if I can get a sense of their level of education on this, if they're open to learning more, um, potentially even to changing their mind, if I can get a sense of that, then maybe I can start to challenge some of these ideas that they might have about this and open the door to maybe a broader set of considerations for what symptoms they're having, if they're even having any symptoms at all. Yeah, that's, and that's actually a nice segue because when you talk about having an optimal level, even if you kind of, I don't know, broadened it and say, oh, well, what about an optimal range, so to speak? Well, it can't just be numbers because there also needs to be sort of this, you know, what does the clinical picture look like? What sort of symptoms, experiences, et cetera, is the individual having? And I find this sort of perseveration <laughs> over what is my, what are my numbers to be short-sighted because it's like not only well, what are the numbers, but also like, how are you feeling? How are you performing? And not only just in the gym, but like in life and yeah. you know, what else is going, what's the whole clinical picture look like? And so I kind of find this, uh, yeah, focus on numbers to be a little bit reductionist for my tastes. And, and a lot of the tests that people get, particularly like the direct to consumer testing, it kind of feeds into this. Like, for example, some of these companies that have like, you know, very clear color code, color coded ranges. So like there's the green and there's the red and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. and that, causes anxiety in people that <laughs> that happens all the time. Um, how do I make this red number green? And it's like, well, biology is a lot more complicated than that. And maybe <laughs> you'd have been fine if you never checked this at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, there was, there was, uh, I think somebody, uh, in one of our, one of our platforms that we frequent to answer questions, I might've been Facebook and might've been our forum. And they were like, yeah, I just, you know, I saw this new doctor and, uh, they sent this whole panel for a number of like different tests. And it's like, well, why, why did they do that? And they're like, oh, just because I'm a vegan, I think. 
And I'm like, well, there's no like standard battery of tests to send just because somebody has a particular dietary pattern. Um, you know, if you're practicing good, high, high quality, uh, evidence-based medicine that, uh, also is cost-effective. So in any case, that's for another podcast. We could do a whole nother like screening testing type <laughs> podcast and really set Austin off on a, we've done that before. And that's something I'll keep coming back to. <laughs> We'll keep coming back to you. Yep. All right. So let's start this out here on episode 232. We're talking about optimal testosterone levels with Dr. Austin Baraki. Let's talk about a little review from the last testosterone episode, which is 228. What are the normal levels of testosterone for men? And so we're talking about total testosterone levels. Uh, and the normal range that is given in most texts is between 300 to 800 nanograms per deciliter. And this varies based on the range uh, for each particular lab. So sometimes you'll see this, you know, 300 to 1,000, 300 to 1,200, whatever. The the numbers, again, it just depends where you, what lab you're talking about and what sort of guidelines you're reading. But in general, the most frequent uh, range you're going to find is between 300 and 800 nanograms per deciliter. And as far as testing interpretation goes, there uh, you need to be aware that there is significant variability in the numbers that you will get, both due to analytical variance, so that's just due to the tests themselves being imperfect, and that's about 4% for total testosterone level. And there's also biological variance, which is based basically, you know, if you test the same person with the same test on multiple days or multiple times during the uh, day, how much will it vary? And within the normal uh, sort of testing time, which is between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., the biological variance for total testosterone levels in men is 12%. And so there could be a pretty substantial range of uh, numbers that would effectively be the same when you look at them on paper. We talk about that more in episode 228, so check that out. Uh, and we talked about what is hypogonadism also in that uh, episode. Uh, and just as a review, hypogonadism is a clinical syndrome that results from the failure failure of the testes to produce uh, physiological concentrations of testosterone and or a normal number of sperm due to disease at one or more areas of the hypothalamic, that means hypothalamus, pituitary, means pituitary gland, testicular axis, the hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis, also sometimes abbreviated HPT axis. Sometimes they include the adrenal gland in there, HPTA axis. I do wonder with all these acronyms, you know, like who's the, who's the organization that sets like norms for this? Like in anatomy, there's a, a whole, you know, official organization for no, for nomenclature and naming stuff, but there's not one for like acronyms in medicine. I don't, I'm trying to think of like, what's the most egregious issue that I saw, like in a medical note where somebody used an acronym that like, not only did I not know what it meant, but there were multiple potential like acronyms yeah. that could have been used. <laughs> so in general, we, we blame, just don't, uh, don't use them. Typ typically yeah. we blame ophthalmology. They have by far <laughs> the most acronyms that are unintelligible by every other specialty in medicine. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in any case, hypogonadism is this clinical syndrome. Again, you're not producing enough testosterone and or sperm um, due to a disease at one or more of those sort of areas, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, or the testes. Uh, so not only do you need uh, sort of low levels, so below that 300 cutoff uh, twice, so there's testing, you get tested twice at the appropriate time under the appropriate conditions, which is fasted again, first thing in the morning, but you also need to have signs and symptoms in addition to ruling out other potential causes of those signs and symptoms and or contraindications to treatment. So again, sending a isolated like 
total testosterone level twice is not good medicine. <laughs> That's not usually something uh, that should be done. I can envision maybe potentially a situation where a full workup has been done and I guess it just never occurred to the physician to like send this and they do it as like an add-on. Like, yeah, oh, we got enough blood. yeah, but at the same time, like that would be the only maybe potential instance of an isolated, mm-hmm. oh shoot, we're just sending this, dang it. Yeah, but not like, "Ah, I just want to check. Eh, Not Mm -hmm. really, not really how this works. So that's for men. In women, testosterone is also very important for normal physiological functions, not just uh, reproductive stuff or libido related stuff, but effectively every organ system in the body uh, uses testosterone on some level to do its normal thing. In women, testosterone is not produced by the testes, obviously, because that's, they're not present, but uh, 50% of the circulating testosterone is produced by the ovaries and the adrenal glands. Adrenal glands are just fatty glands that sit on top of the kidneys hanging out, producing all sorts of different compounds, including sex steroids. And the other 50% of circulating testosterone in women is um, basically converted from DHEA. Dehydroepiandrosterone. Yeah, that, that's you said it fast enough for me to be confident in there that you didn't <laughs> skip a vowel. But yeah, yeah. Nobody actually ever says that. They always just say the acronym. <laughs> yeah, exactly. DHEA. Uh, so the other half is uh, basically uh, produced by this conversion of DHEA and androstenedione to testosterone that's done enzymatically, again, in the periphery, which is a fancy doctor speak for outside of the, uh, in this case, adrenal gland and ovaries. So in the bloodstream and various other tissues, et cetera. So about half and half, uh, testosterone levels in women vary based on the, uh, menstrual cycle. So the levels are 20 to 30% higher before ovulation. And there's the, still that same, uh, daily variation that we see in men. So it's higher in the morning, lower in the evening. And the normal range of testosterone in women during reproductive age is somewhere between 15 to 46 nanograms per deciliter, uh, resulting in men having 15 to 20 fold greater, uh, levels of circulating testosterone than women at any age. So pretty, pretty big gap there. Uh, We'll talk about women more throughout this podcast and how the testosterone affects various aspects of health and performance. But as uh, as sort of a background, sort of fund of knowledge, men, normal testosterone levels, 300 to 800, women, 15 to 46, big, big difference. As far as how this changes over the lifespan, most men will tend to see a decline in testosterone levels in the fourth and fifth decade, though this doesn't actually seem to be age-related as much as it seems to be related to the accumulation of uh, different medical conditions that happen to be age associated just as people get older. Things like obesity, diabetes, et cetera, all tend to um, cause a decrease in testosterone levels. But if you don't develop any of those things, testosterone levels seem to be preserved. In women, testosterone levels begin to go up in uh, young girls around age six to eight when the adrenal gland, again, that's that fatty gland sitting on top of the kidneys, starts to produce DHEA and DHEA attached to a sulfate, which we call DHEAS. So the peripheral conversion of that to testosterone causes this initial rise in testosterone. This peaks somewhere in the 20s to 30s. And then after that, the endogenous testosterone level tends to decrease after the age of 30. And uh, once women reach menopause, they'll have lost about 60% of the total uh, androgen pool at that point. As far as how testosterone levels in the population have changed over time, we kind of addressed this uh, in depth in episode 228. It is popular to say that total testosterone levels have decreased in men over time, um, but the data on population-wide testosterone levels in men is nuanced. We know that diseases such as obesity, diabetes, sleep apnea, different forms of cancer, et cetera, 
and as well as use of alcohol and other medications can result in lower levels of total T. As these conditions and behaviors have increased in prevalence over time, the average testosterone levels in the population have indeed gone down by a little bit. Uh, although interestingly, the incidence of hypogonadism hasn't skyrocketed. Skyrocketed. It's actually remained pretty stable between 6 to 12%, despite a massive increase in testing, despite a massive increase in testing. So when people say, oh, the average testosterone level of a you know 25-year-old man now is half of what it was in the 70s. So one, that is not supported by evidence. The difference is far, far smaller kind of actually within that range of like biological and clinical variation. Um, but also the incidence of hypogonadism hasn't really changed in the last, you know, 30, 40, even 50 years. Uh, so again, the size of the decrease, just as an example, there were a few different studies looking at this one um, in a population of uh, uh, men living outside of Boston. They basically took two different uh, samples of testosterone uh, from two different groups of men spaced out by 20 years apart. And they were supposed to be matched on age and, uh, um, you know, where they were living, obviously. And during the first time period, the average testosterone level was 500 and it ranged between 392 to 614 nanograms per deciliter. And in 20, 20 years later, they tested another group of individuals, again, age matched, and the total testosterone level average was 391 nanograms per deciliter with a range between 310 to 507. So yeah, it's gone down a little bit, uh, but not certainly not by 50%. Um, and what's interesting is that when you actually look at like the incidence of other medical conditions in these groups, they, they have gone up a lot. So things like increase in overweight and obesity, alcohol use, other chronic illnesses, et cetera, effectively explain this slight decrease but it's not by 50%. That's the whole thing. Like when you say something like that, very specific, <laughs> the testosterone levels in a 25 year old man now are 50% of what they used to be. It's like, so you just kind of uh, hung yourself with that statement. <laughs> Why are you being so specific? And because you're being so specific, where's the citation for that? Yeah. If you want to say they've gone down a little bit as health has declined or the incidence of certain medical conditions have increased, great. Nobody's going to take issue with that. But I guess that's not as sexy on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to say it's gone down by 50%, so, you know, we need to eliminate soy and get everybody on testosterone replacement, <laughs> as yeah. we've heard from people in the fitness industry, is a bit sillier than saying it may have gone down a bit. And so we should really work on, you know, uh, overweight, obesity as a problem through lifestyle behavior change, through, you know, medication, through surgery, work on alcohol use, prevalence in the population, all sorts of other things, uh, you know, working together on this <laughs> would be <Yeah>. great. <laughs> yeah, we should try to promote health in the community in order to like generate better health in the community. Weird. Um, yeah, no date on women on this. Uh, unfortunately, I, I did do some digging to try to figure out like, do we have normative data on women spread out by like 20, 30 years um, and their total testosterone levels? But unfortunately, as we see, uh, uh, pretty commonly women get the shaft when it comes to medical research, but uh, we'll try our best to uh, include women uh, every step of the way here uh, when we talk about optimal testosterone levels here on episode 232. So shifting to the next section here, outside of hypogonadism, we're not going to really talk about that anymore. This particular podcast, we're going to just try to figure out, is there an optimal testosterone level for health and performance? So starting off here with sexual function, Testosterone is intimately involved in every step of the male 
and female sexual response. However, the occurrence of sexual disorders cannot automatically be re- uh, like related directly to a decline in testosterone levels. In fact, this relationship is complicated by organic, which means like neurological, cardiovascular, endocrine, or hormone, other hormone issues, uh, in addition to relational and psychological factors like major depressive disorder, which can independently impair sexual function outside of just testosterone levels. For example, it is recognized that erectile dysfunction can result from vascular or neurological damage as well as from low levels of testosterone. Interestingly, a specific testosterone level that's reliably associated with erectile dysfunction has not been clearly defined. Uh, It is typical to evaluate testosterone levels in men who present with erectile dysfunction and or newly reduced libido from a previously normal level, along with uh, evaluating other potential causes at the time. But there's not like a specific number, oh, your testosterone levels before this, we predict that you will have erectile dysfunction. Um, So for example, in a study of just over a thousand men, serum testosterone levels less than 225 nanograms per deciliter, which would be decidedly hypogonadal. Uh, was associated with an increased frequency of sexual dysfunction. However, in the testosterone trials, which is like this landmark sort of study set on testosterone levels, testosterone replacement, et cetera, and men's health, there was no threshold serum testosterone level that was reliably observed for erectile dysfunction. To me, this seems like there's just more complicated sort of things potentially going on um, and overlapping Uh, medical conditions like diabetes, which we know is associated with erectile dysfunction, cardiovascular disease, which we know is associated with erectile dysfunction, neurological disorders, psychological factors, et cetera. And so I think, you know, while again, as we mentioned, it is normal that if somebody presents with like a new decrease in libido or erectile dysfunction, yeah, we're probably going to send a total testosterone level. That's not the only thing we're looking at. Like, wow, this almost universally <laughs> correlates because that is not the case. Yeah. Overwhelmingly in practice uh, these days and with kind of evidence-based uh, updates and, and and clinical guideline recommendations and things like that, there's actually been a really strong push in, you know, I say recent years, but I think it's been, you know, actually for a fair amount of time to where uh, among, if, if, if a man is presenting with concerns of erectile dysfunction, you know, new onset at most ages, but in particular among like early middle age, that should actually be viewed as uh, a potentially a red flag for early cardiovascular disease and, and mm-hmm. kind of digging into that a little bit more, much more so than it is an immediate red flag for, for hypogonadism. There's a ton of, uh, you know, pretty ominous data, honestly, of, you know, if, if uh, looking at individuals who show up with new onset erectile dysfunction, say in this kind of like early or middle age kind of, kind of time frame, and then their risk of having like a heart attack in the subsequent decade or, or, you know, 15, 20 years is markedly higher compared to those who don't. And again, the the incorrect assumption would be, oh, well, it's because they have low testosterone and low testosterone is what's causing that. It's like, it's actually, they have subclinical cardiovascular disease, meaning they have cardiovascular disease that is, you know, brewing that is not yet causing symptoms because that's how atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease works. It takes decades to develop mm-hmm. and the blood vessels that are involved in erectile function and the, and the sexual response are so much tinier than the blood vessels that feed your heart or your aorta or that feed your legs that symptoms there may actually show up from the impairment in, in vascular function, endothelial function, blood flow may show up there before it shows up anywhere else. So that's not to 
scare people and, and, and to say automatically that all erectile dysfunction is due to, you know, obstructive cardiovascular disease. But I would be more concerned about that upfront and wanting to be confident that this person does not have that going on, you know, evaluating their, you know, uh, blood pressure and blood lipids and, and, and other aspects of their cardiovascular health um, would be a higher priority for me upfront than immediately saying, oh, this is probably low testosterone. Let me start them on TRT or something. Yeah. Like that. And two things can be true, obviously, like you could have a person whose ED erectile dysfunction is principally related to either heart disease, type mm-hmm. 2 diabetes, or even just more broadly, cardiometabolic disease. So like the confluence of both of those things, Yeah. who also has low testosterone. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because of the cardiovascular disease that's brewing, because of the type 2 diabetes that is brewing, et cetera. And so uh, a kind of a theme that we'll maybe keep coming back to is that uh, testosterone levels seem to be almost uh, reflective of current health status rather than like predictive in a way. And much the same way that vitamin D levels are sort of reflective of what's going on under the hood rather than like a number that you need to optimize above all else, because it's so important. And that's not to say that vitamin D isn't important. It certainly is, but you know, buffing the chart and making the number look good is maybe not the, you know, a panacea that is made out to be. Agree. Okay. Okay. Uh, as a last little note here, uh, as far as sexual function goes, there is a, a pretty good size, uh, sizable chunk of data on women uh, with respect to testosterone levels and libido uh, and things like anorgasmia, et cetera. The data here is all over the place and I do not feel comfortable commenting on this. And there does seem to be a connection, but I view it kind of the same way as I view it with men in that it is more complicated than just a number equals function. Um, as an aside, just do you remember the first time you took a physiology course? Like you were in college, I assume. Yeah. Dude, I took it and I'm thinking, I'm like, look, we can predict what's happening in the human body just by knowing the normal function and any perturbation. Mm-hmm. We can predict exactly what happens. As it turns out, clinical medicine is a lot different than that. <laughs> but you take physiology, you're like, I got it. I'm a doctor now, basically. I can figure this out. <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, the next sort of uh, health-related um, uh, topic we'll talk about with respect to this, quote, optimal, uh, unquote, testosterone level is mortality. Uh, the majority of longitudinal, uh, these are mostly community-based population studies, uh, have reported significant associations between all-cause mortality and low testosterone, but not all of them. So some of them have not. Um, the the Veterans Affair study followed men who are older than 40 years of age from a hospital database. Uh, they followed them up for a mean period of 43 years, so pretty much the rest of their life. All-cause mortality was higher in men with low total testosterone levels, so below 250 nanograms per deciliter. It was 34.9% in that group compared with 20% in men with a total testosterone level greater than 345, which is exactly what you would predict because being lower than 250 signifies uh, hypogonadism or at least a risk of being hypogonadal. It's certainly below that 300 level that we talked about earlier. So depending on the signs and symptoms, et cetera. And if we are uh, uh, under the impression that total testosterone levels are sort of reflective of health at a given point, having a lower level, particularly one that's below this, the normal cutoff would indicate to me that that patient population was sick or sicker than the patient population that was higher. And so you would predict that they would have higher mortality rates. 
Um, in any case, men with low and equivocal testosterone levels um, tend, uh, tend to have higher mortality than men with normal testosterone levels after adjustment for age, medical conditions, <clears throat> body mass index, glucocorticoid, and opiate treatment after exclusion of those who died in the first year of follow-up in this particular study, those with a low testosterone level had an increased hazard ratio of 1.88 for all-cause mortality. I can see the headline now. Mortality is raised by 88%. Yeah. And I mean, it's like they're trying with this study. This is all still observational data. And and they're trying with this adjustment for age and comorbidities and BMI and, and you know glucocorticoids and opioids. And it's like that gets you maybe a bit closer to being able to you know, say that there's a real effect there of the testosterone concentration in the blood itself and the risk of mortality, but it does not get you all the way there. This is still observational. These adjustments can only get you so far. This only, you know, when you adjust for comorbidities, you're adjusting for the other medical conditions these people have. That assumes that you know all of the diseases and all the comorbid conditions they have. There is a substantial, like there, there's an almost guarantee that these people have uh, underlying or undiagnosed medical conditions that have not yet been identified, detected, or that may, you know, come up or something like that. And so, you know, this is one of those things where I don't really uh, know how you would execute a, a, a trial where you randomized people to higher or lower testosterone levels right, yeah. outside of, you know, some form of, you know, uh, androgen deprivation therapy at some point in life, which will come with issues of its own. Um, but uh, this is, uh, you know, this is the, as you said, exactly the type of correlational outcome that you would predict in either scenario, whether testosterone is directly related to their risk of death, or if it's just correlated and their risk of death is mainly being driven by all these underlying factors. This data, even with adjustment, does not help you confidently, you know, uh, uh, move the needle to one side or the other there. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, as far as the next health-related topic, we're talking about obesity and body composition. Um, so lower levels of te total testosterone and free testosterone are associated with increased fat mass and decreased lean body mass, and higher levels are associated with increased muscle size and strength. But whether or not a dose-response relationship exists between total testosterone and lean body mass within the normal physiological range is currently unknown, which means it's a fancy way of saying like, look, if you're at the low end of normal versus the high end of normal, like, does that predict how much muscle mass you're going to have, how strong you are, what your body composition is? And further, a separate question that's somewhat related, how do you do with respect to exercise interventions, dietary pattern interventions, et cetera? So the interesting thing here is that while like total testosterone levels appear to be positively correlated with lean body mass and inversely correlated with adipose tissue, when you actually look at this over a long period of time, there's effectively no influence of these baseline levels on change in these parameters. So how much lean body mass do people gain? How much fat mass do they end up accumulating or losing? This implies that body composition initially affects hormone levels and not the reverse. So effectively, when you you have this study showing, look, man, higher quartile testosterone level, higher amounts of lean body mass, it's like, yeah, so they had less fat mass and their testosterone levels were higher. That's exactly what you would predict. Not that the testosterone itself is causative. And so I think that's just important to accept some uncertainty in this causality arrow, like which way is it pointing? Is it pointing towards testosterone is causing these things or more reflective? And again, my overwhelming sort of, uh, you know, perspective on this is that testosterone is more reflective of stuff than predictive. You, what do you think? Yeah, it'd that? be great if you could just pull a level on somebody and you'd be able to tell them how they were going to do in training or just like, 
you know, population-wide screening and pull the highest levels that you can find and put all those people, send them all to the Olympic Training Center or something mm-hmm. like that. It's like, but none of that will work. It's not, not predictive of these kind of things because whether, I mean, you mentioned how much of it is reflective of, say, underlying health status, but even among those who train, we know that training itself can suppress levels in the short term, depending on when you when you draw a lab. So like really hard training individuals, you know, not surprising to draw it because of the physiologic stress that's that's happening and things like that. So, yeah, this stuff is complicated. Yep. Can confirm. All right. So that's the deal on uh, sort of body composition. Next health related topic is going to be diabetes. Type two diabetes we know is a risk factor for hypogonadism or testosterone deficiency and impaired uh, sexual function. Some studies uh, also investigated the association of testosterone level and diabetes risk in men, but the findings are relatively controversial. So there's a recent meta-analysis of over 16,000 individuals that show that higher testosterone levels decrease the risk of type 2 diabetes. This came out in 2018. And so you're thinking, you're like, oh man, we just got to dose these type 2 diabetics or individuals with type 2 diabetes with testosterone, and boom, we can cure them. But again, we kind of got to go back to the central paradigm. Like, is this what, this a chicken and egg sort of thing? Was it, oh, they developed type 2 diabetes and their testosterone levels were lower? Mm-hmm. Or, or they had lower testosterone and that increased the risk of diabetes? And uh, honestly, both those things could be true. For example, if the testosterone level decreased because of some other uh, underlying medical condition going on, that could also increase the risk of diabetes. <laughs> But uh, I view this, again, more as uh, that same sort of thing. It's more reflective of the current health status rather than being causative. Yeah, this one's actually kind of interesting because you're right that I think that this is a situation where there's a little bit of both that can be true in that gaining of of body fat, insulin resistance can all drive diabetes, can also lead to testosterone levels decreasing. um, And that can explain a fair amount of the correlation we see. However, there are some studies actually looking at you know, putting these patients on testosterone and it does actually tend to improve their, you know, their, their Mm -hmm. uh, glycemic control, their blood sugar, potentially, you know, some of their body fat, lean body mass. And so this is a situation where I think there's a little bit of both going on. That's not necessarily to say that it's the best way to treat diabetes um, because that hasn't been studied. In other words, comparing head to head, say testosterone, putting these patients on testosterone compared to, you know, say a GLP-1 receptor agonist or, or metformin or something else, you'd have to do a head to head comparison and look at outcomes there to see how, you know, well, these things work for blood sugar control, for cardiovascular, you know, risk for, um, all sorts of longer term outcomes. But this is just a particularly interesting one, just because there is some, some evidence on testosterone improving diabetes outcomes, but that's, I, I don't think that many people, who get diagnosed with diabetes are going to be interacting with clinicians who are eager to start that as first line therapy for their diabetes. It's more of an experimental thing right now. <laughs> Can you imagine a new diagnosis of diabetes in an individual and then it's testosterone monotherapy just by yeah. itself? <laughs> I mean, I, I diagnose new onset diabetes all the time in the hospital. And that is obviously not the, the immediate first line thing that I'm, that I'm starting these patients on in those situations. Yeah. yeah I would like to see like testosterone monotherapy versus testosterone plus a GLP-1 uh, receptor agonist versus just the GLP-1 receptor agonist versus, you know, the, the something else maybe. Very interesting design, study designs. Totally. Yeah. Would you call it elegant? 
<laughs> maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, we'll see how it turns out yeah we'll see so maybe some interesting stuff happening there and i agree that yeah two things could be true in that particular case all right with respect to heart disease we have some decent data here on testosterone levels and how that correlates to uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease ascvd um, so this is nhanes data which stands for national health and nutrition examination survey uh, data um, this is in 1470 men who had no history of cardiovascular disease or cancer at baseline and and it demonstrated that low free testosterone and bioavailable testosterone independently was independently associated with an increased risk of all cause and cardiovascular mortality during a follow-up between baseline and year nine. But after year nine, these associations disappeared, which I found interesting because you would think that if these, um, sort of relationship, if the relationship was so strong between testosterone's ability to predict cardiovascular disease, it would not only persist, but get stronger. So the hazard ratio is 1.43, which you're like, hmm, that's not nothing. That's a decent hazard ratio, not as powerful as something like a, you know, hazard ratio of, you know, 1.9 something to whatever you're getting way up there, but you're like 1.43 is not nothing, but then it disappears after year nine. Does that just mean there's like a greater burden of other things that are more predictive or just that the testosterone levels effectively, uh, you know, are too similar after year nine? I don't, I don't know. I mean, when we look at things that we know much more confidently are directly causal or, you know, contributory to cardiovascular disease, be it high blood pressure or high blood lipids, um, which we've talked a ton about on previous podcasts, when you look at those exposures over time and their relationship to atherosclerotic heart disease, the kind of curves widen over time. In other words, that people with higher levels compared to those with normal or lower levels, that difference in heart disease risk gets wider and wider and wider over time. The longer you go with that, um, you know, ongoing exposure to that risk factor. Right. And so if that's, if we see the opposite here, that would be, uh, suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just wonder if like, you know, at, at the point, at that point, if you're talking about nine, you know, after nine years of follow-up, maybe those other things become way stronger and it's like testosterone just kind of falls off. I don't know, but yeah, overall not too sort of confident in, in reflecting the relationship between testosterone levels and it causing heart disease, rather it being again, more predict, more predictive. So my TLDR on how, uh, testosterone levels sort of impact health and like this quest for an optimal testosterone level is that sex steroid hormones like testosterone are major determinants of both men and women's health status. Uh, low testosterone levels have been associated with obesity, diabetes, renal disease, cardiovascular disease, and many other chronic diseases. Lower levels within normal limits and even lower than that, so with hypogonadism, tend to be associated with worse health outcomes, probably not in a causal sort of way, but more in a reflective of the person's health status. And that is very similar to my view on vitamin D right now, for example, just that lower levels of vitamin D are more indicative of what's going on under the hood, you know, person's health status, rather than like causing these different conditions that they're correlated with. And I view testosterone as much the same way. Austin, any any sort of feedback there? Yeah, it'd be great if we could cure all of those things that are associated with low vitamin D levels just by giving people vitamin D. In the same way, it would be great if we could cure all these other things just by putting people on testosterone, <laughs> but yeah. uh, does not appear to play out that way in reality. So, yeah. All right, we're shifting gears. We're going to talk about optimal testosterone levels 
for performance. And again, we're limiting this discussion to just uh, testosterone levels effectively within normal limits. We'll save the discussion of administering testosterone supplements, exogenous testosterone uh, to the next podcast. So if you're interested in anabolic steroids and performance enhancing drugs, wait for uh, episode 233. Um, The first thing I want to bring up is it's a pretty unique condition that I have become aware of, I don't know, maybe four years ago. I didn't really know about this before that. And uh, that's my bad because I think the first paper on this was published in 2005, which means that I was almost 15 years late on this. And uh, (laughs) yeah, I'm ashamed. But in any case, this particular condition is called exercise hypogonadal male condition. So exercise induced uh, hypogonadism in the male. Uh, Effectively, these are people, mostly endurance athletes. In fact, I think that's where this, uh, all this data came from. These folks have profoundly low testosterone levels in general, but tend to be asymptomatic, meaning that they don't actually have any clinical signs or symptoms upon presentation, um, despite having low testosterone levels. And so it makes you sort of think like, is this a transient state where they just have not manifested any of these signs or symptoms? One of the things you'd start to worry about, particularly an endurance athlete might be like bone quote unquote bone health. Uh, So like uh, osteoporosis, osteopenia, fractures, things of that nature, but also sexual function, you know, would be uh, potentially compromised. And so I guess my first question that comes to mind is why are these people having their testosterone levels checked outside of like a research setting, you know? Um, But in any case, uh, Hackney has effectively been leading the um, charge on this. He was the first one to sort of describe this condition. And he's got five sort of um, characteristics of uh, men with EHMC is the abbreviation they use. So uh, characteristic number one, a low resting basal testosterone level, typically only 50 to 75% that of normal, healthy, age-matched, sedentary, or insufficiently active men. Criteria two, these low testosterone levels do not appear to be a transient phenomenon related to the acute stress of exercise training. So when you test testosterone levels after exercise, a whole bunch of problems can arise. We know that testosterone levels will vary based on posture, based on recent training, um, based on uh, how much you have you know, either sweated or um, actually consumed. So you can dilute if you, uh, your, your sample, if you drink a bunch of water, you can concentrate your sample. If you sweat a bunch (laughs) out, all sorts of stuff can change. Um, but yeah, so it can't just be like, Hey, right after exercise, my testosterone levels were low. That is not the proper way to test testosterone. And so that we don't really know what to do with those numbers. Uh, characteristic number three, in many cases, it appears that an adjustment in the regulatory axis has occurred to allow for a new lower set point for circulating testosterone. That is the gonadotropins. So the things sort of signaling uh, testosterone release or production uh, by the testes uh, are also lower. And so if you were doing like a test on these individuals, and you saw low testosterone levels, so below 300, for example, you expect that their LH, luteinizing hormone, and FSH levels would be higher, sort of compensating or reacting to that low level of testosterone, but you don't see that in these individuals. And one of the mechanisms used to explain that is that, well, maybe these folks are just more sensitive to this lower level of testosterone that's kind of floating around. And so the body being smarter than we are and many times is like, we don't actually need to produce more testosterone. We're good. We're Gucci. Uh, so that's just the third characteristic that uh, Hackney has described. 
Fourth characteristic, uh, a history of early involvement in organized sport and exercise training is likely. This has resulted in these men having many years of almost daily exposure to physical activity. And we're not talking about like 20 minutes of walking. We're talking about like ultra endurance type training. So these folks, um, usually in the literature, when you look at like these over exercisers, as sometimes they're called, or extreme exercisers, these folks are doing 3000 minutes per week of exercise. And just to put that into context, the current physical activity guidelines recommend between 500 to 1000 minutes of activity per week. So we're talking about three times that potentially more. And we've seen some other like interesting findings in this group. For example, their coronary artery calcium scores in those folks tend to be higher than those who are insufficiently active, for example. And you're like, but they're so active. Like, what's the deal? And it's like, no, this may just be one of those weird findings that's compensatory, but also not necessarily risky. It's just like a didn't know that because all of the normative values that we're using are not from this type of population. Uh, and then the fifth and final characteristic is that the type of exercise training most frequently seen with these men is prolonged endurance-based ex- uh, activities such as distance running, cycling, race walking, and triathlon training. Again, this is not talking about somebody who's going to the gym and lifting weights for an hour three or four times a week. We're talking about people engaging in multiple hours per day on average of usually endurance training. I did some digging just to try to find like, has this ever been described or any of these characteristics really been described in individuals in strength power sports? And the closest I can come up uh, with something is uh, this data set from the 2011 um, IAAF uh, International Track and Field um, sort of event. They basically tested all the dudes, their testosterone levels, and 13% of them had testosterone levels in the normal range of a Uganadal woman. So wow. like, t- yeah, you know, 20 times, 30 <laughs> times lower. And Damn. so they thought, hmm, maybe this has been popping up in even track and field athletes who aren't doing yeah. this ultra endurance stuff. But this, to my knowledge, has never been described in people lifting weights, in people uh, involved in, again, strength power sports. Uh, I wonder and, what you would find in uh, non, non-supplemented non CrossFit Games athletes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd be curious just to, due to their training volume, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the incidence of this is pretty high. Uh, it's 15 to 25% of people in ultra endurance sports or uh, men are estimated to have this, which, you know, it's funny. The study was like, oh yeah, it's relatively rare. I'm like 15 to 25% is not rare. Yeah, <laughs> That's like something exactly. you want to screen, screen for. We don't know the mechanisms yet, like why this happens. Uh, it's thought that, you know, again, potentially you could have a bunch of different things going on. One would be like the expansion of plasma volume, for example. So if you are engaged in a lot of activity that makes you sweat a ton, the body is going to compensate by holding on to more water and you could dilute your sample that way. And so it's like, oh, it just looks low, even though it's not really low. Um, There's also this potential um, energy like restriction or energy availability uh, type uh, slant to this. Uh, which used to be called like the female athlete triad uh, now is referred to as reds. So relative energy deficiency syndrome uh, to inc- include both men and women. And so you have effectively a finite amount of energy coming in. And if you are spending all of that energy for like, you know, keeping the lights on, <laughs> keeping your immune system t- functioning, you know, uh, digesting food, um, supplying muscles with, with energy, et cetera, you're going to run out of energy potentially. Some of that could be, um, necessary for normal uh, sex steroid uh, hormone production. So that's possible. But overall, I just find this interesting because you have this swath of the male 
sort of athletic population who have profoundly low testosterone levels without clear symptoms. And so it's kind of like, man, if we're trying to discern an optimal testosterone level for dudes in sport, this kind of throws a wrench in that, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And even like, what if you would almost, what if this is like a feature instead of a bug? Yeah, we don't know sure. enough about it, but like you test a, an ultra marathon and you're like, wow, your testosterone level is finally low. You're good to go. You're peaking baby. Right. right, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with, with respect to the, you know, the, the women's side, what used to be called female athlete triad, that is pretty clearly associated with some negative health outcomes. Um, you know, uh, increased risk of fractures and, you know, um, among, among other complications if this, I mean, this condition is not as well characterized, I would say, among men. And so if we don't have great evidence of negative health outcomes from it, then you don't really have a case to recommend screening uh, if mm-hmm. there's not a problem that results from this. Um, and so that's kind of where you need to characterize this a little bit better. And is like, is this even a problem? Or as you said, is this more kind of like a system-wide kind of like adaptation to the stress that they are putting themselves through? And if there's no clear, you know, imp- impairment of health or premature death or something as a result of it, then, uh, why worry, I guess, you know, there's probably a lot of other hormones that you could test that might also be look a little wacky in this kind of a population. Um, so I bet if you measured some TSH for some thyroid func, you know, uh, stimulating hormone levels or something, they would probably not be perfectly normal in this kind of a population that's, that's, uh, that's doing this. Um, because I mentioned to you, you know, before we started recording, there's this condition that's called the euthyroid sick syndrome that I see actually a fair amount among sick patients where their thyroid stimulating hormone levels are off. Their actual thyroid function seems to be okay. And I say, eh, it's because they're sick or they're physiologically stressed or whatever the case is. Let's get them through this and then recheck it when they're all better. And it's probably going to be fine. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see kind of like a similar sort of deal with respect to uh, testosterone in this situation. Yeah. The most interesting thing I, I saw as far as like a potential mechanism or reason for why this occurs, the thought was like, okay, well, if you drop testosterone levels or, you know, the circulating levels of testosterone, potentially that would be adaptive in a way that you're not supporting excess amounts of muscle mass in these, in these men, uh, selective atrophy. I don't know. That's, that's a reach for me. Uh, yeah, I agree the other data, but <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. Speaking of muscle mass, perfect segue into this. Um, so how do testosterone levels relate to muscle mass in sport? So in men, we know that total testosterone levels are positively correlated with lean body mass and inversely correlated with adipose, uh, tissue. And that's just at a cross-sectional level. So if you just took a snapshot of the population in, uh, at a given point in time, you would expect, uh, or you would predict that those with the highest levels of testosterone would have more muscle mass and less body fat. What you don't know is how over time do these testosterone levels predict changes in lean body mass, changes in fat mass, et cetera. And when this has actually been studied, there's effectively no influence of these baseline levels in the change in lean body mass and adipose tissue. Again, this implies that body composition affects hormone levels and not necessarily the reverse. And so all all that is to say is like, I would not be seeking like an optimal (laughs) testosterone level in order to gain more lean body mass or lose more fat mass, I would uh, basically expect that the changes in those two things would result in a different testosterone level in general. Um, That's, of course, again, ignoring people using exogenous testosterone 
or individuals who are very sick and are becoming, you know, sarcopenic, for example, or muscle wasting, cachectic, et cetera, things of that nature. Yeah, or if you just have any of these other conditions that could be, again, as we've said, contributing to a lower testosterone level, I would work on getting healthier rather than focusing on the testosterone level. So if you're not sleeping or you have sleep apnea, fix that. You have diabetes, yeah. get that treated, excess body fat. You know, we, we have lots of ways that we can improve that nowadays. So, you know, getting healthier will probably improve your training outcomes more than having a bunch of medical conditions diagnosed or undiagnosed that are associated with a lower testosterone level and just getting on test. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. In women, there was a recent meta-analysis, I believe this is a year old, maybe a little bit less than that, did not show any correlation between uh, total testosterone levels and lean body mass or fat mass. Um, and that's, again, I should, I should clarify that this is all sort of in the, not only like a cross-sectional, uh, st uh, state. So where you're just, again, taking a picture of the population at a given time. Um, but, but also this is like reflective of things that are happening longer term, not like directly after exercise, directly after exercise would be more this acute setting. And that's more related to this, uh, theory or hypothesis that's called the hormone hypothesis, which postulates that acute post-exercise hormonal uh, secretions mediate increases in muscle size. And so people have perseverated over what does testosterone levels, what do testosterone levels do after a workout? What do cortisol levels do after a workout? Growth hormone, IGF-1, et cetera. When we actually look at this, and there's a pretty elegant uh, review done by Schoenfeld uh, in 2013, um, on like, what does the data actually say on these short term changes in hormone levels after a workout? Do they predict changes in muscle mass? And these are two quotes I'm going to read. Quote number one, research is contradictory as to whether or not the post-exercise anabolic hormonal response associated with metabolic stress, that's just from exercise, plays a role in skeletal muscle hypertrophy. Given the inconsistencies between studies, any attempts to draw definitive conclusions on the subject would be premature at this time. The second quote is, what seems relatively clear from the literature is that if a relationship does in fact exist between acute systemic factors and muscle growth, the overall magnitude of the effect would be fairly modest. And so effectively, when he went through all the data and reviewed like, all right, what uh, do short-term changes after a workout and testosterone levels, how do they predict muscle mass changes? It's like, eh, shoulder shrug. Same thing with cortisol, same thing with growth hormone, same thing with IGF-1. And like uh, uh, data that's been published after this has seemed to support that. And so when I look at like studies on different hormone levels after a workout, all I'm seeing are the effects of the type of training that has been done and sort of the normal physiological response to a stress most of this short-term hormone changes are related to energy availability. Like how do we get more energy to the working muscles, working tissues, uh, not only for the actual training itself, but also for the repair, recovery, remodeling sort of processes that need to occur to uh, get the person back to their sort of baseline or ready state. I see that. And then the other thing that I tend to see is uh, a, a big sort of variation in how folks respond to exercise-related stress just you'll see a variation in hormone levels all over the place that again are not predictive, but mostly uh, indicative of other things going on. So for example, right after a workout, immediately after you're done, testosterone levels are going to be lower and cortisol levels are going to be higher. And this sort of signals like part of the inflammatory cascade and like sensitization of androgen receptors. And so if you didn't have that because you were under some like protocol to optimize testosterone levels right after a workout, that might actually blunt your response to the training. 
overall, I would not concern myself with what's happening happening with respect to hormones directly after a workout because we just don't have good data showing that trying to manipulate these things actually does anything. Uh, and further, I'd be again worried that any sort of change in the normal physiology would be bad rather than good. My expectation is that because all these negative studies exist, that trying to do anything to outsmart the system, to hack the system would probably lead to worse outcomes rather than better outcomes. Austin, any, any comment on that? Yeah, I think I agree with you across the board. The only thing that differs, I think, between us is that you said when I look at studies examining the acute post-exercise hormone response, and the difference is <laughs> I don't look at those studies. <laughs> yeah, you just you just ignore it, right? Because you're yes, just not exactly. concerned. Yes, yes exactly. That's correct. probably the that's probably the well-adjusted take there. Yeah. Uh, all right. So with respect to strength, so we just talked about muscle mass. With respect to strength, in untrained men, a moderate to strong positive relationship exists between testosterone concentrations and muscle strength. Uh, these levels do not appear to predict strength gain unless we're talking about exogenous administration of testosterone levels to folks. But if we're just talking about uh, people uh, who have testosterone levels within the normal range, it does not seem to actually predict how folks respond to exercise. And probably the best data we have on this is comparing men to women as far as how much strength they actually gain from a given resistance training program. They gain the same amount of relative strength compared to each other after the study period is over. And what that means is not that women lift more weight or the same amount of absolute weight that men do after the session or after the intervention, after the study period, but rather they'll both gain about 10%, for example, or 15% or whatever the sort of relative improvement is. And that's despite having 20 to 30 fold differences in total testosterone levels, which should just tell you that the total testosterone level that somebody has floating around, provided they're not hypogonadal and provided they're not taking testosterone supplements, probably does not have any effect on the amount of strength gained uh, in an individual uh, with respect to responding to resistance training program. But if I was just given uh, you know, a bunch of numbers and names or de-identified patient data on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet and I saw those with the highest testosterone levels compared with the lowest testosterone levels, I would predict that those with the highest levels would not only be carrying more lean body mass, but also be stronger. Not because of the unique effects of testosterone necessarily, but because this is reflective of sort of the underlying health of the individual. And in general, healthy individuals, healthier individuals are going to be stronger, carry more lean body mass, carry less fat mass, have less medical conditions that might uh, contribute to anabolic resistance, et cetera, take less medications, all sorts of stuff. And so that's kind of how I view this. In a cross-section, yeah, I would predict that higher testosterone levels uh, are better. But as far as the response to training, I feel like there's almost no good data supporting that unless you're talking about people being given testosterone. I agree. Yeah. I mean, not only, not only might it reflect health status, but also just like habits, like they sleep better. Boom. You're probably going to, you're more likely to do better from training, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, in women, the total testosterone levels are not associated with strength either at baseline or as they respond to training. And you know, it's interesting because you do see the relationship between men and testosterone levels and in lean body mass and strength, but you don't see that in women. And I wonder if it's just because the testosterone levels are so much lower and the range absolutely is so much narrower that you just can't parse this out. You know? Yeah, you, you, uh, I mean, the, 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 the range is, is quite small. And so to distinguish, you know, say tertiles or something like that across that, you need to have 
an enormous sample to be able to really confidently distinguish, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Not only that, but because like the actual testing itself has so much variability. You're like, if your quartiles are like, all right, 12 to 21 and 21 to 30, you're like, yeah, you're already, and you're already working at the lower limits of the assay. And so add in some, you know, 4%, 12% of those variations that we talked about earlier. And you're already like all over the place. So yeah. Also obligatory 21 Savage reference because I think I said 21. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Last thing I'll say here with respect to strength is that, uh, again, when you look at that data from the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF, on athletes who have competed over many years at the elite level in track and field, they concluded that the normal reference range for testosterone in men was 223 to 849 nanograms per deciliter. And then in women, it was between zero and 144 nanograms per deciliter. So those are the two like sort of different ranges they established based on these actual athletes who were competing at the highest level. But there was no consistent correlation between performance in men and women and their selective sport um, and their testosterone levels. Uh, I talked about that a little bit in the Shades of Grey article, and I'm sure that many people who are listening to this have read that article. But if you haven't, it might be uh, might be interesting. So I'll link that in the description below. So overall, I view this that testosterone, uh, similar to what we saw in health status, uh, is a marker um, for performance that is affected by training, health status, body composition, etc. Again, it's likely not predictive of performance at any given time, um, especially if we look at the data longitudinally, so over time, and how folks respond to exercise. But it's more of a reflection of, again, the person's current health status. Uh, And the last thing I'll say on this is that people will often claim that exercise significantly affects testosterone levels. Just like if you start exercising, your testosterone levels are going to go up. But a recent meta-analysis showed that uh, folks who were previously insufficiently active but were eugonadal, so meaning that were not hypogonadal men, they had normal testosterone levels, did not seem to affect resting total or free testosterone levels. And so it's just uh, interesting to me that this sort of myth persists. It's like, oh, you got low testosterone levels, you should exercise. And, and while I think if that's the lever that people want to pull because they're so invested in raising their testosterone levels, that's all good. And if they improve their health status via exercise, they might, in fact, see an improvement in their testosterone levels, uh, particularly if they lose body fat, gain muscle mass, adjust sleep other better. behaviors, Lots sleep better. Eat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, cool. Your testosterone levels went up because you became healthier, not just because you exercised. And so I could, it'd be really hard to do a study that kind of teased all that out. It's like you would have to have uh, people who exercised who are non-responders to exercise <laughs> did not improve any they, parameter. And then you couldn't generalize it to anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then, and then you'd have another group of folks in that same cohort who were hyper responders and you saw this marked difference in testosterone yeah. levels. And that's kind of what I would predict to happen, uh, not to be overly reductionist, but that's kind of my prediction there. Uh, we'll see if somebody does that. So uh, to wrap this up, I think the central paradigm here I have with respect to testosterone is that testosterone levels are reflective of the current health status of the individual rather than predictive of what's going to happen with respect to health and performance. There's no singular optimal level. Um, In fact, it's likely to be a range, again, associated with particular signs and symptoms. And as far as testing goes, please refer to our testosterone replacement therapy uh, episode. That's episode 228 uh, for not only testing, but also uh, diagnostic criteria. In most cases, 
we would prefer to try to quote unquote optimize health rather than optimize testosterone. If we can fix all of the things that are wrong under the hood or improve them, we're likely going to see a benefit or an improvement in testosterone, but I wouldn't go chasing that number in and of itself. I would rather want to make sure this person's got normal blood pressure, their blood cholesterol is normalized, their hand, their blood sugar uh, tolerance and, and glucose disposal are, uh, uh, you know, within normal limits and, and things of that nature. They're exercising, they're sleeping well, they're eating a health-promoting dietary pattern. And all of those things should improve or increase the total testosterone level to a more normal level. But I wouldn't just focus on, ah, we got to get the T level up independently of those other things. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I think that what we're talking about here and, and, and you, like your first point where you're viewing it as more so reflective of health than predictive. And I think that that's a reasonable take for most cases, like broadly speaking with most of the situations that we would run into with, with, you know, like guys who are in our comments, comments or DMs worried about their testosterone level. Of course, that doesn't necessarily apply to all cases. There are certainly some situations where the patient or the person has some other health conditions and we're already doing everything we can for those. Or it may be somebody who actually does not seem to have any other underlying health conditions. They have signs or symptoms of hypogonadism, but they don't have the obesity, the you know sleep apnea, diabetes, any other issues. In those situations, TRT can be great for those folks. It can be very appropriate generally safe for those with, you know, diagnosable clinical hypogonadism or the even smaller subset of people who actually have like testicular failure. Like that's a thing that happens for a variety of reasons, be it genetic related, infection related, trauma related, surgically related, you know, chemotherapy related. Those are situations that do not really, <coughs> excuse me, that, that don't really apply here. And so I, I definitely don't want folks to listen to us on these episodes talking about this the way we are and saying, well, these guys would never put anybody on TRT or recommend testosterone. It's like, I've done that for plenty of people, but it is after a thorough evaluation, after we've talked about all these other things that could, that may or may not be going on, other things that we can work on, because it's not an insignificant thing to commit somebody to, you know, in a lot of situations, twice weekly injections for the rest of their life. And so um, working on these other things, when you don't have uh, a suspicion for something like primary testicular failure, where there's not really any other way to get around that, right? Um, but in these much more common scenarios of metabolic syndrome and obesity and alcohol and sleep apnea and things like that, I pr much prefer to work on all those things. And definitely among people who have those things and are also worried about their training because, you know, we've had a lot of history with folks who, you know, maybe they get started training they aggressively gain a bunch of weight uh, and then their training starts to go poorly. Maybe they get injured, they start to feel bad, they get their testosterone checked and no surprise, it's not great. And testosterone is not the way to fix that. <laughs> Fixing all those other things, your programming, body fat, all those other things is, is a much smarter way to, to go about that. Yeah. And I think anything related to like supplements or, you know, whether they're uh, herbs or you know, nutraceuticals or other protocols designed to increase your testosterone levels without actually changing behaviors to more health those that are more health promoting, I, this is a waste of time, guys. Like we just don't need to do that. You're, you're effectively, again, buffing the chart, even if these things do work, which the majority of them do not, um, ra rather than fixing, again, the underlying or the root cause here. And for all this talk about like root cause, getting to the bottom of things, fixing what's going on, people just, when it comes to testosterone, do not do that. They're just like, nah, just need tea. It's like, in some cases, that is true. You got client filters. Yep. Gonna, you're going to need tea for sure. <laughs> right. Right. But but for most of these other things, we can probably uh, make a big dent in this without uh, necessarily going, going with that. So 
All right, that's a wrap here on episode 232 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We talked about the optimal testosterone level for health and performance. Special shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me and listening to my ramblings. Uh, Shout out to you for listening. Really appreciate it. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Also, make sure to check out all the links in the description below. Everything we talked about there will be there. And I hope to see you at one of our live in-person seminars. Really appreciate your guys' attention. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.